Hello and welcome to Combo Chain, a JRPG Games Club podcast. And uh, in this episode, we're doing Octopath Traveler. I'm Paul M. Davis. And I'm Elisa James. And I'm Ian Agosa. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show, Ian. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a games journalist. I'm working at the gaming news site Dual Shokers. I specialize in Japanese games, especially in, in niche Japanese games and things that are a bit less known in, uh, in mainstream spaces. So I tend to write about a lot of sometimes visual novels, games that are exclusive to Japan and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, you're the perfect person to guest on this show. Yeah, yeah, we're really glad to have you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. And Paul and Alisa invited me. Alisa used to work at Dual Shookers as well, so we know each other pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Ian does an incredible work on the site. Like his Japanese co- coverage is bar none. Absolutely amazing stuff. So I'm still glad to like be able to read like all of his pieces and whatnot. Definitely check it out too if you can. He does great work, great translations, great coverage, a lot of knowledge. And of course, if you like Genshin Impact. <laughs> Maybe at least one or two plus a day. So yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, I might have to pick your brain on how to get past like I'm still stuck in the in the uh, first town of uh, Genshin Impact. So <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah, we uh, we have a little other news. Alisa is as of this episode joining as the full-time co-host of Combo Chain. So that's very exciting. You've been on the show a bunch, Lisa. But yeah. Yeah. So, so, I'm- so that is very cool. And uh, also, just a little piece of news, not to start out with the pitches uh, originally, but uh, since Lisa's joined and we're getting a little help in the editing element, we're uh, going to start doing a third episode every month. And it's going to be a Patreon exclusive. Yeah, $5 subscribers will get a completely exclusive full episode of the show in addition to the two that we usually release every month. And uh, yeah, the first one we're starting this month is going to be Final Fantasy VIII. So check that out. It's on uh, Patreon at uh, Mirror Image Studios. So pitch over. But uh, yeah, I hope you join and check out the uh, exclusive shows. Yeah, getting back to Octopath Traveler. What is uh, y'all's histories with the game? Oh, for me, I, of course, was keeping track of its development and everything when it was first announced. I ended up playing that very first demo when you had, it was Primrose and Oberic, right? Yeah, so I played that demo immediately fell in love with Primrose. Just, <laughs> I was just like, and and honestly, just fell in love with her character and the storytelling overall, like how they handled a lot of like really dark subjects in her story. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just blown away by that. And then I think that's really what cemented it for me. And of course, the visuals are gorgeous. The battle system was great. Although I did love the fact that the devs were very open to any concrete with the battle system. And that was stuff that they actually integrated into the final product. 
But yeah, I was falling. I fell in love with all those things. And then ever since I knew I was absolutely hooked, I had to get my hands on this game, which I did. And I enjoyed immensely. Loved it. <laughs> so I'm a big fan. <laughs> awesome. How about you? It was the same for me right after the Nintendo Direct, where the first talk about the game was it was announced. The demo Project Octopath Traveler was released and I tried it out. To be honest, at first I didn't. I wasn't very convinced by the first demo. It's the second demo, especially with all of the eight characters that really made me want to play the game. And so this demo had a safe transfer feature. So as soon as the game was out, I went out to buy, to buy the game and I was playing like on the way back home, I was playing the game already on mm. Switch with, uh, with my save from the demo. I was pretty excited. And uh, ultimately, why I really like the game, I think definitely have some things that it could have done better. I have some some kind of mixed feelings overall on the game. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, we can, mm-hmm. and we can definitely talk about that more in detail when we do the final thoughts. But I feel the same. Uh, there is a lot of there is a lot of portions of the game where I felt like this is a game mm-hmm. that I respect immensely. But I'm not really enjoying it <laughs> right now. But yeah, there's just an incredible amount to recommend it too. Yeah. yeah, my backstory is pretty much the same. I enjoyed the Bravely series on the 3DS. Didn't totally love them, but I did like them. And so I was really curious to see what they do with this, with kind of like a very kind of different format. And yeah, I picked up the demo. I sent them feedback through their form when they asked for it, which was a really cool thing that they did. And yeah, I think a lot of it also was at the time the Switch was kind of starved for JRPGs. So I was like, okay, this is a day one purchase for me because (laughs) (laughs) I I play my Switch probably 80% of my gaming time. And these. (laughs) <laughs> These are still relatively the early days of the Switch, and there was not that many. Yeah, and yeah, I picked it up and got pretty deep into it for a while. It was good commuting on the bus game. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into the development process for the game. So it was released for the uh, Switch in 2018. Since then, it's uh, come to uh, Windows Stadia and Xbox One. I think there was a timed exclusive for the Switch. But yeah, I and I think I heard recently that it's on uh, Xbox Game Pass. I'm not sure if either of you know about that. I think so. Would you happen to know, Ian? Because I feel like it is, but... Uh, I'm I'm not sure myself. Yeah. Yeah. This is this isn't an Xbox household in my house. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't touch an Xbox since the original, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah, it is. I think it came to Xbox Game Pass. I'm looking at it now, which in March of this year, funny enough. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like March. Yeah, so it was around that time. Okay, so that's why it happened pretty recently. Right. right. Yeah. So yeah, the project was started by producers Masashi Takahashi and Tomoyo Asano. 
who were the uh, people who previously had the Bravely Default games on 3DS. And uh, the soundtrack was composed by, and this is one of his only one of his only game soundtracks. He tends to do more like uh, anime and film soundtracks. And I thought it was a really phenomenal soundtrack. It was, absolutely. So yeah, the uh, team was heavily inspired by the 16-bit Final Fantasy games. And it's probably worth noting here that Takahashi, one of his first projects was working on Final Fantasy for Heroes of Light. So he's got some, it's a minor Final Fantasy game, but he does have some roots (laughs) in there. And other games like uh, Saga Frontier were a inspiration. And oh, I'm sorry, were you going to say something, Ian? Uh, no, yeah, I was agreeing. Yeah, it's very Saga Frontier-like with the multiple characters. Indeed, yeah, totally. And they were aiming for kind of an enhanced 16-bit visual design and using pixel art within like 3D diorama-like environments. It's funny because it gets described a lot as being looking 16-bit, but it almost looks like a weird mix between 16 and 32-bit. <laughs> in its art design. And I think it's funny because a lot of people will look back and be like, or look at recent games that have retro graphics and be like, oh, this is totally 16-bit or this is totally 8-bit uh, design. And it's the uh, NES or the SNES could not have ever done some of the <laughs> visuals that they're doing. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, in an interview with uh, Eurogamer, Takahashi explained the thinking behind this uh, design style. He said, with today's actual hardware, there's no limitation regarding expressing yourself with graphics. You can do whatever you think, whatever you want, and it's a big difference. In the Super Famicom era, people tried to get to the limits of their hardware. And what they did was limits of what they could do. And we enjoyed the games because beyond those limits, we tried to imagine what they couldn't express directly on screen. We tried to make a game that brings us back to that time when we needed to imagine situations and emotions, but with a new looking graphical aspect. Yeah, I think that kind of sums up that they were trying to achieve what wasn't possible in the 16-bit era while not you know making it a completely like modern 3d game exactly like they were trying to basically maintain the integrity mm-hmm. of of that type of gaming but like you said reach beyond like that hard limit that they they couldn't get past at the same time it's very interesting that they actually managed to work that somehow and it just turned out really good it is. It's just, it's a really fascinating art style. It's gorgeous. The pixel art yeah. and the, like I said, like the diorama type environments, but also the really tasteful use of like modern visual effects, like, you know, yeah. a lot of the lighting and whatnot is very modern, but they used it like sparingly just to add like this kind of like sheen of polish on it. Exactly. Yeah, and kind of to perfect that, what they called the HD 2D look, Mm -hmm. they went through like multiple iterations working with the graphic options and spent a lot of time working with the depth, resolution, and saturation of the images. 
And this mm-hmm. is like a perfect example of uh, the challenges of this kind of development is they really debated whether the water in the game should be pixelated or uh, photorealistic. So yeah, as I as we mentioned before, the game's development was also influenced by user feedback. A early demo was released on the day the game was announced, January 13, 2017. And uh, yeah, the developers actively requested you know user feedback in a online forum, which is very rare for a game by a major studio and they definitely Mm -hmm. took a lot of that feedback to heart so that's pretty impressive and then uh, interestingly the bravely and octopath traveler series aligned with the general square enix initiative to uh, place more resources into small-scale rpgs following the uh, disappointing uh, returns on like big budget projects the final fantasy 13 series you can also there's a bravely team there's also the tokyo rpg factory games which the less said about them the better (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I never tried the tokyo rpg factory games either but beat i am setsuna or lost fear I, i never heard really good things about it yeah so it's a bit of a shame it was it was a very popular like movement of trying to do old school JRPGs, but from Square Enix, but it felt like it never really worked out. Yeah, yeah. I spent some time with Last Sphere and Satsuna, and they're perfectly serviceable, and there's they're fine. <laughs> they're <laughs> capital F fine. I, I wouldn't get, be so harsh as to say that they are similar to those Chemco RPGs that come out every week, those Game Maker Chemco RPGs. But, yeah. but you know, they they seem to have, <laughs> you know have a similar kind of like lack of inspiration other than oh wow, we really like Chrono Trigger, so here's our inferior <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels this way. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting because Square is just amazing in the fact that they can have these smash hits and do really well, and then just consistently fall on their face with these ambitious things. <laughs> it's interesting to see this part of initiative. It's almost like taking the uh, Atlas tact, where they really make have found a lot of success with like smaller yeah. budget like jrpgs that are still really excellent yeah and it's funny because you could argue too that after they were having issues with the bigger budget titles that it was square almost going back to their roots in a sense because before the whole merger before you could argue they became more corporate they were known obviously final fantasy was like their biggest thing but they were known as like va jrpg company because they were so ambitious back in the um and uh, the, uh nes super nintendo playstation one airs especially even a bit of playstation 2 of course where they put out so many different titles and they really weren't afraid to like experiment Mm. with uh, what they put out and they just they had so many different things out there and then they unfortunately started seeing them later on just just simply 
throw support by a few of their big titles, mainly Final Fantasy and such. So I guess it's nice now seeing them diversify again. And yeah, they do fall flat on their face, (laughs) which is funny. But I'm grateful that we're seeing a bit more of them trying to promote smaller titles and getting that diversity back in there. It's it's, it's yeah, nice. Yeah, and some of the kind of like more experimental and yeah, elements and yeah, and it seems like they're sticking with it. There's that they just released that demo on yeah. Switch recently, the project triangle whatever. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> project triangle strategy. Yeah. 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 I, I downloaded that demo, but I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, same here. Didn't play it yet. But <laughs> yeah, but despite this initiative, as they often seem to do, which is strange to me, Square relied on Nintendo as a uh, distribution partner because they were dubious that traditional JRPGs would appeal to a Western audience. It's funny. The. Square and Nintendo seem to have kind of a strange relationship in general in the sense that most of the Square games on the Switch are actually released and distributed by Nintendo. And that was the same case with the Bravely games on the 3DS. They apparently needed, like, the affirmation of Nintendo that, like, traditional or old-school JRPGs would would have have families in the West. Yeah. Which is really funny to me. It's 2021, and hopefully with the con- uh, success of Dragon Quest Eleven, which is an amazing traditional JRPG, they'll... Uh, oh, absolutely. A little more, you know... Yeah. A little, le- little less <laughs> reticent. Mm-hmm. So, um... Spicy hot take, but I prefer Nintendo's localization over Square's. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in. <laughs> well, you know, I think I, I feel like Nintendo's localization team doesn't really get the credit they deserve. They do they do some pretty great stuff. Absolutely, and very consistent across the board. I feel like Square's gotten a lot better, but they definitely have trouble being more consistent. Mm-hmm. They've definitely gotten a lot better, but yeah, I think Nintendo by and far is way more consistent and translate. So I'm like, I, I agree with you that Square should be distributing their own games in the West. Doesn't make sense to keep leaning on Nintendo, but then I'm like, ah, but do I really want to lose their light, their their localization? <laughs> <laughs> So I'm always torn. Let's see. Okay. Oh, yeah. So Acquire was uh, chosen as their development partner based on their previous game on the What Did I Do to Deserve This Lord of My Lord series, which is not a series that I'm familiar with. But uh, yeah, it seemed like they did uh, a lot of the uh, just grunt coding of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so basically, finally, the eight main characters, the four are men and four female, were chosen to provide different party variations. And if that, you, you see this in Octopath Traveler, but also in the Bravely games, like this team is really into like job systems and roles and classes and what. And so, yeah, all the characters have different classes. And interestingly, but not too surprisingly, they base the character design and the field commands on different occupations that were common in uh, medieval Europe. 
And uh, yeah, to a square surprise, I'm sure the game was massive of uh, success with 2.5 million copies sold worldwide <laughs> as of February 2021. Yeah, it was it was announced in February by the Japanese Twitter of the Octopus Traveler series. Uh, I think it's definitely worthwhile because Octopus Traveler was a brand new IP. It's really not often that you see like a brand new game. It's not a sequel, a spin-off doing this especially, especially in this era right now. So it was really impressive on, on, on Square Enix's part. It shows that they finally managed to like to nail that nostalgia, that GRPG nostalgia formula that they've been trying for several, several years now. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And I think the the fact that it just had such positive buzz just from the beginning of as soon as the game was announced and the first demo was released, people were just absolutely in love with it already. And I remember a the private gaming Slack that I'm on. I remember when it was announced and everybody just lost their shit. Just looking at, <laughs> looking, at the, uh, looking at the images and the videos. That was yeah. me. <laughs> For the mechanics, each of the game's eight characters have a unique path action command that can be used with interacting with NPCs, and they're divided into two categories. The first is Noble, which that ability's effectiveness is dependent on the character's level or the amount of their in-game currency. And the second is Rogue, which has a risk of its user losing credibility among other NPCs. And so relating to that, when the player loses enough reputation in a given town, they can no longer use their path actions on any NPCs in that town. So for instance, it's going to have a pretty big effects because for instance, you're losing out on these characters, uh, unique abilities that like Oberic and Ahanit, they can challenge characters. Cyrus and Alfine can inquire about certain bits of information that's used for the completion of quests or in the form of hidden items. So that's a big thing that can get affected. Tresha and Therian can acquire items directly from NPCs, and Ophelia and Primrose can guide NPCs and use them as guest summons. So the battle system in general is a modernization of the turn-based systems of 16- and 32-bit square JRPGs. Each party can be up to four characters, and each player character and enemy normally acts once each turn. And turn order is determined largely by the speed stat of each character. So the battle system has two unique mechanics, which somewhat resemble the one seen in the Bravely series, where characters can stack actions, although Octopath Travelers places more restrictions on players in battle than the Bravely series uh, system. With the boost system, so with the uh, the boost system, each character receives a boost point at the start of each round, provided they did not spend any boost points in the prior round. Each player character can save that boost point up to a maximum of five or spend between one and three boost points to empower their actions for that turn. And then you have class systems that can be empowered to deal more damage, provide more healing, impose status effects for increased duration, or improve the odds of chance-based skills. Basic attacks can be stacked to provide multiple attacks on a single turn, which is critical for leveraging the break system. Regarding the class system, one of the biggest like preference 
things about the battle system is that each character can change into any class, so you can do tons of different combinations. Battle system and with the all the different possibilities you can do is definitely one of the biggest appeals of the game. Each character has his own base class and also have a, as a set class, we can be any of the other eight classes. So you can do tons of different combinations like this. Yeah, yeah. It gives you a lot of creative leeway in the way that you battle. <laughs> just uh, yeah, just exactly. <laughs> kind of a funny note. I played it for a while until I hit a really tough boss. And that's when I realized that you could uh, use the boost system for uh, magic as well as just like basically. <laughs> oh, no. But I played, I don't know, maybe four or five hours of the game before I figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, so, and mm-hmm. plus, plus the eight initial classes, you also have four advanced classes, basically that you can unlock through the game. It's basically with by beating be, uh, bonus bosses that are kind of hidden. You need to do some hidden bonus dungeons and beat the bonus bosses to unlock these classes and that brings it that brings the total to 12 different classes and you can do a lot of different combinations so yeah the, the battle system overall is definitely my favorite thing about octopus oh yeah absolutely this battle system is incredible uh, that was actually what first swept me away in a demo and then of course it was just only improved on just how fast-paced it is, how in-depth it is. And you can feel it too. What I like about it is the difficulty because there's never, there wasn't a point where I felt like, oh, this is really cheap. Man, they're just stacking everything in favor of these bosses. It's like when you lose or you have a hard time, it's because of you. And then you have to go back and reevaluate what are you doing wrong? Are you not using the system properly? Or you're not taking it like you're not taking advantage of like exactly like the battle system, like how you didn't realize you could stack magic and that started affecting you later when you need it to. Or are you not utilizing the class system and really diversifying the classes that you have your characters go into? Like things like that. Or is it just are you under leveled? Is it your strategy had to be tweaked? Like they really balanced that super well. And I was blown away by how consistent that was. Because that's the thing that a lot of JRPGs struggle with, I think. Think. And yeah, I think by and far the battle system is incredible and really is like the 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 true like gem of this game. It's definitely a, a great evolution of turn-based battle system as well because sometimes like you often have nowadays sometimes players will, will say that they that uh, turn-based system is mandatorily like overdated or uh, like boring as a great counterexample that shows you can still do great things with, with battle systems even even right now exactly exactly yeah absolutely and I'm, there's yeah there's just so much almost logic puzzling that you have to do to really like figure out especially with, against some of the bigger monsters and bosses and when you compare that to a lot of other contemporary JRPGs, that stuff doesn't really matter. It's, all you have to do is 
you know, think about, okay, what are, what's, what's this enemy week two and just hammer on it and maybe do a little grinding and you're set. It's refreshing <laughs> to see a game that really makes you think through how you are going about the battles. Exactly. Yeah. And in tying into that too, even like with the whole weakness thing, they do it in a in a more unique and complex way than just spam your and the enemy's weakness and then instant win. Because with the break system, each enemy has a defense strength paired with weaknesses to certain weapon types or elemental attacks. Damage from such attacks is increased by 30% and reduces the defense strength of the enemy by one. And so when you reduce an enemy's defense strength to zero, that will break them, causing them to lose any remaining actions for the current round and prevents them from acting on the next round and will double all damage taken regardless of their weakness. And as I mentioned before, when it comes to certain bosses, this is absolutely critical in turning the tides. It's, and the way that you have to do it, it's not just simply spamming the weakness. You have to know exactly what you're targeting to make sure that you're not hitting those strings or you're slowly whittling down their defense and then that's when you get the results of that and you earn that whole that that break status that really weakens them significantly so i really like that kind of build up versus just doing the same thing over and over uh, until they're dead totally totally yeah and how you can you know have different ways that you exploit the break system it's pretty great Mm mm-hmm Exactly. Yeah. Let's move on to the plot of the game. So the basic premise is that it's uh, set in the land of Orstera. And in this land, basically, the Order of the Sacred Flame believed that their world was created by 13 deities. But 12 of them were forced to seal the fallen god Galdera who refused to relinquish what they created within an afterworld that can be accessed through the Gate of Finis, which we'll talk about after we go through all the different narratives. And basically, the player follows the stories of 
the eight heroes as they journey through Orstera, all of them kind of following their own paths, which at times intersect with one another and other times do not. <laughs> Let's talk about talk about all these characters. So starting out, we got uh, Ophelia. And Ophelia's story starts out in Flame's Grace, where we find out she was adopted by the bishop there. And she soon became friends with his daughter, Liana. Liana was originally supposed to claim Alfric's flame and go on a sacred pilgrimage around Ostera to bring the fire to other cathedrals. But when the bishop falls ill, Liana is basically distraught and doesn't feel like she can do that anymore. So Ophelia decides to take on the mission herself, and she takes flame, and she goes on the pilgrimage in Eliana's place. She also meets Matthias, who claims to be there to help her with uh, preparations for the pilgrimage. When she gets to Saint, when she gets to Saintsbridge, she meets a boy named Emil, who's having problems with his friends Daryl and Nate. Daryl's mother is, had passed away, and uh, Emil misplaced her brooch. While trying to locate it so that Daryl would forgive him, uh, Emil ends up running into the forest. Ophelia and Daryl chase after him, and she manages to protect the boys from a beast. The boys become friends again, and Ophelia then heads off to uh, Goldshore, where she uh, once again meets Matthias. In the cathedral there, the bishop Donovan appears distracted, and we later find out that's because his daughter was kidnapped. And basically, if he wants to see her again, he'd have to take flame from Ophelia and deliver it to the kidnappers. So Ophelia decides to confront the bandits herself, and uh, she manages to rescue the girl. However, just when she's about to return to Flame's Grace, uh, Liana shows up to tell her that her father has passed away. Liana then drugs Ophelia and takes the flame away. When she wakes up, she uh, learns that uh, Liana has gone to Whispermill. At Whispermill, she finds out that Matthias has been leading a cult that opposes the teachings of the sacred flame, and that he plans to have Liana assist him in a ritual to uh, summon the dark god Galdera. Liana basically hopes that by participating in the ritual, she'd be able to resurrect her father. But Ophelia manages to remind her of her father's words when they were younger, that all life must come to an end. Liana basically comes to her senses, and Ophelia battles and uh, manages to take down Matthias. They then return to Flame's Grace, where Ophelia and Liana are reconciled. Aww. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Like, what do you guys think of it? I, I like, I really liked it. It's definitely one of the stories that is really like central to the overarching narrative. Yeah, and there, there was a lot of like really sweet moments, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely would say it's one of one of my favorites. Yeah, I was really surprised too with like how well it does tie in with the other stories, like. Seeing when you play later on, like the epilogue and whatnot, and you find out more about like how all these other events were affected and 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 affected in turn this story, and it's really cool. And then of course, I really liked Ophelia as well, and like just 
her tale. And I was very invested in it. I was actually really relieved that even though it had a bit of its tragedy, that it ended off on a nice note, mm-hmm. at least. Because I was really worried they were just going to kill off her friend. I know. I know. Totally. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, good. At least they get to have some happiness. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ophelia's story is definitely interesting because you learn a lot about, about the world setting, basically, like the religion of the world, the fucked up traveler, how some of the cultural aspects works. Which is definitely interesting. The like the and I also really like like the the family teams. I, I like this kind of thing in games. I, I wouldn't too. say I wouldn't say Ophelia is my favorite story, but I, I like this this kind of stuff. And then for what for what I didn't like, I'd say I'm not sure. Like Matthias was ultimately the villain. I think he was like rather thinking whether he was a good villain or not. I think it's a bit of shame. Like. How Ophelia trusts him like too easily, I'd say. It's like you could tell from about miles away, he was definitely up no good. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a bit weird. Ophelia tricked so easily. I'd yeah, say. yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's such a JRPG thing. <laughs> to like anyone like who tells you anything, you just believe them instantly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think I think because of that I didn't even pay attention because you see it so often. But yeah, it is very weird. <laughs> yeah. It, it feels it feels like Mateus, is that how you say his name? Yeah. Yeah, if it feels like Mateus is more like a force in a way. He's not, obviously he's like an antagonist, but his main goal is to basically help Lyanna deal with her father's death. And and with Ophelia, Mateus is like that force of her not being able to accept it, like obsessing over it if she went down that path versus Ophelia being the type to go, your father lived his life and it was tragic that he died. Everyone dies. And it's something that we have to accept and be able to try to slowly heal from. I feel like that was just really his role. And he was just more of that kind of force rather than like a regular villain. So I guess that's too why I didn't really mind so much much like Ophelia trusting in him too much because it was just like when I saw how it unfolded I was like oh okay he's like this sort of role in this yeah that makes sense should we move on to Osiris yeah I'll be taking care of Cyrus story so Cyrus is like one of the is is like the the smart guy of the octopus traveler protagonist is a very cool and very like intellectual type of person. So Cyrus is a professor in Atlasdan and the, the beginning of the story shows how he's tutoring two students. There's a young girl, Teres, and there's Mary, who is the princess of the kingdom. And Cyrus doesn't know, but Teres actually has a crush on him, but she basically she feels like inferior to Mary as a student because Mary is, is a better student of the two. And Cyrus is always, she, she feels like Cyrus is giving her preferential treatment because Mary is a better student. So when Cyrus finds out that a tome from the school archive is missing, he then goes on an investigation and eventually finds out that one of his colleagues wrestled a stone in the book. So 
you know, Cyrus ends up confronting Russell and he managed to retrieve the, the book. And then after that, he gets called to the headmaster's office, which is the, the headmaster even. He finds out that he's been accused of having illicit relations with Mary because of the, the tutoring. So the headmaster's assistant, Lucia, suggests sending Cyrus away on a sabbatical to avoid the drama. Cyrus agrees, and thinking this will be a, a great opportunity to look for the tomb that's been missing. And the tomb is, is named From the Far Reaches of Hell, which is a very interesting. Cyrus sets out to another city, which is called Crary Crest, where he, where he meets an old friend named Odette. Odette tells Cyrus that several of the townspeople have been missing, and Cyrus starts investigating the case, and he learns that a mage has been using the missing people for experiments, which is what which is called blood magic. And Cyrus ends up defeating the mage, and he also finds the mage had an abridged copy of From the Far Reaches of Hell. And this is how the mage was doing his, his blood magic experiments. So then Cyrus decides to travel to Stoneguard so he can find the person who translated the, the tome for the mage. And at Stoneguard, Cyrus ends up fighting the, the, finding the translator of the book, who reveals that Headmaster Evan was the one who gave him the job. So basically, here you learn that Cyrus' boss was actually a bad guy, basically. So then Lucia also shows up at Stoneguard. She, Lucia was the assistant of the headmaster and she asks Cyrus for help in taking down the headmaster. So the two, Lucia and Cyrus, head to the headmaster old house in town. But Lucia ends up betraying him and she pushes him down a trap, basically. She passes him, him down a hole and even shows up and he's smoking Cyrus, he, he gloats. So Cyrus isn't trapped for long, however, because Teres was following him in his quest and she shows up and she frees him from the from the cell. However, she even takes her away, she, she gets kidnapped. So Cyrus decides to, to give chase and rescue Teres. So when Cyrus confronts Evan, it transforms into a blood monster. Before he dies, Evan mentions that he was betrayed as well. Therese reveals to, to Cyrus that Evan has been talking about going to another city, Dusk Barrow. So they decide to leave for Dusk Barrow, and Cyrus tracks down Lucia again, who is revealed to be the mastermind behind everything, and she's the one who was manipulating Evan. And into stealing the tone. So Cyrus follows Lucia into some ancient ruins and he discovers that Lucia has a whole secret library of forbidden knowledge and, and books. And Cyrus also finds some knowledge about the, the Gate of Phoenix, which is the gate which, is, which was used to bring uh, the dark god Galdera back into the human realm. So Cyrus ends up taking down Lucia, and lastly, he goes back to Alstadam with Therese, and he continues his studies, his job as a teacher. Yeah, Cyrus' story is also pretty interesting because it has a detective kind of team, where he's, yeah. he, he does investigation to find who stole the book. He ends up finding the truth that his own boss at the school and his assistant were the masterminds. Uh, he ultimately ends up defeating them. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting 
Crossing the Stovia as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a sucker for anything to do with some like weird occult book or something like right? <laughs> anything like that. Yeah, I really like that aspect of uh, the story. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because it's funny because he reminds me, Cyrus reminds me of the character, what was it, Yomiko from Read or Die, in the way like where everything that kind of motivates him has to do with books. Like even when he's being accused of like having an affair with Mary and they tell him, go take a sabbatical, he's like, oh man, I'll just look for a book. (laughs) I love this guy. He was a very interesting character. And like you said, I really like the detective uh, investigative aspects of that, of his story. That was it was pretty cool and of course like anything with like weird cults and like that kind of dark sort of thing is really cool stuff so yeah i actually enjoyed this story a lot as well absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. i'm I'm also a sucker (laughs) Uh, for like weird end times end time cults and whatnot (laughs) so yeah Cyrus story is a Cyrus story when you play through it is even more interesting because if I remember correctly when he defeats Lucia which is basically his final boss of your story you actually before the final cutscene basically you still have to to decipher the ruins where he's at decipher the murals and this is where you learn a bit more about the dark god Galdera and there's a pretty creepy scene where he disappears something and he just says like death, death and repetition. It was, that's creeped me out. That's was pretty, oh, yeah. that pretty cool. <laughs> I, I like this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Next up, we have Tressa. So Tressa is a simple a merchant living in Rippletide. One day she comes across Leon Bastral, a notorious pirate turned merchant who teaches her the value of having a true treasure in her life. She receives a journal from him, which is full of adventures noted down by the book's unknown owner. She's then inspired to go on a journey of her own. So her first stop is uh, Query Crest, where she meets a fellow merchant, Ali, and the two start a friendly rival. Tresha uh, eventually encounters uh, Morlock, the cruel overlord of Query Crest, who's been underpaying his miners. After he kidnaps Ali, Tresha goes to rescue him. Ali tells her that she should go to Grand Point for the merchant's fair once she's found a good treasure to sell. So after that, her next stop would be uh, Victor's Hollow, where she meets Leon again. So... She manages to acquire a map that was owned by Leon's long-deceased friend, and it leads her to a location nearby where he's hidden a valuable gem called Eldritch. She retrieves it and brings it to Leon, but he tells her to keep it, saying that having the map itself was good enough for him. So after that, she ends up at uh, Grandport, where she plans on showing off the Eldrite. She meets a young girl named Noah, who talks about how she longs to go on an adventure herself. And so later on, we find out that the Merchant's Fair was hosted by uh, Lord Windham so he could buy a treasure for his daughter to make her happy. His daughter is revealed to be Noah. Before the fair starts, a woman named Esmeralda steals the journal from Tresha. With Allie's help, she tracks down Esmeralda and takes the journal back. During the fair, she puts the journal itself up for auction and says she hopes it will inspire Noah to see the world for herself. So Noah tells Windham she wants the journal and he buys it for her. Later on, we meet a diarist named Ing who tells Tresha that he was the one who made that journal. It was owned by an adventurer named uh, Graham Crossford 
who traveled around the world and jotted down his findings. Tresha then decides that it's time to go back home. I would say for me, I I don't think there's a weak story in this game because I like that there's differences in terms of, I really do like there's differences in terms of stakes. Not every single story is very dire. Some are, are more personal, some or like this one, for instance, this one is more of a, a softer tale. I do think it's weaker than the others because how I felt was that the stakes weren't really there for for this story and not for Tresha's compared to other ones. So I think that was a balancing thing. Like, I think there should have been more tension involved, more conflict, something that made it like, I guess, stand up better to some of the other stories. So it could, even though it has a different tone, which once again, I love that I'm fine with, it still has a, a more of that personal drive and like that, oh man, this is going to turn out well for her, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, in, in concepts, like I liked that there was more, I like the idea that there's more like small scale stories but at the same time, like, I would say that this one was a dud for me. It just, there, there were so many other much more compelling stories going on that this one just felt, I wouldn't say it's fair to call it padding, but it felt that way while yeah. I was playing it. Yeah, it's definitely, like, uh, completely different than other characters. It's like they, they try to go for something like more poetic, like contemplative, and with how Tressa finds out that the real value is not is not necessarily something actually valuable, but her diary because of the life experiences and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a kind of story I guess that really re- resonates more or less with more depending on who's playing and. Yeah, I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say I disliked it, but yeah, uh, I, yeah, I definitely get what you guys mean as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, definitely didn't dislike it at all. It's just compared to the other stories. Yeah, it wasn't that compelling. Ultimately, it's a bit of a shame too because Tressa is definitely one of my favorite characters. She has a great personality and she's yeah. As well, so uh, she's the character, the protagonist herself is really fun, but the story is it's just like there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah, Trust is a great character. I agree with you. So yeah, I felt like the story it wasn't good enough for her. Should we move on to Ulbrich? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ulbrich, which is your classic. <laughs> this guy is going to be a big warrior or fighter just because with a name like that. <laughs> exactly. That just, just JRPG warrior hero dot text <laughs> kind of name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, basically years before the game story starts, Ulbrich's uh, homeland Hornburg fell with the death of this king. His friend, the knight Erhard, had betrayed him and killed the king himself. And so, Ulbricht's story starts for us in uh, Cobbleston, where he's a hedge knight protecting the small town. When bandits, when bandits attack, Ulbricht tracks them down and finds out that their leader was acquainted with Erhard. After defeating the leader, he goes to Victor's Hollow in search of a man named Gustav who can tell him more. At Victor's Hollow, he enters a tournament and uh, faces off against Gustav. Gustav reveals that Erhard had betrayed Hornburg because the king failed to protect his town when they were raided by bandits. He also tells him that Erhard can be found at Wellspring. 
So Ulbrich heads over to Wellspring and learns that Earhart now spends his days protecting the town. But basically they reunite and they fend off the hostile lizard men. And Ulbrich sees that Earhart is repentant and manages to basically best him in a duel for their honor and whatnot. Earhart reveals that he was part of a mercenary band under the leadership of a man named Werner. Um, Werner? (laughs) Werner, Werner, (laughs) who is the one who uh, plotted the downfall of Hornberg. Olberg then travels to Riverford and finds that the whole city is under Werner's control. He teams up with the local resistance to take down Werner, who reveals that he brought down Hornberg because that was where the Gate of Finnis was supposed to be located, and he wanted to see it for himself. So after that, Olberg returns home to Cobbleston. Mm-hmm. What did you all think of this one? So, uh, oh, oh. Oberich's story is one of is one of my favorites. Like I, I just really like it's pretty classical actually, but I just really like cl- classic stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, with uh, rivalry with with Erhard and the like the duel part when they reunite and stuff. I just really it's just really classical shonen anime. Like it's Son Goku and Vegeta, it's Naruto and Sasuke. It's just stuff like that. <laughs> I, I just like this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good good example and kind of contrast with the last character we were talking about that you can have these have like very small scale story and then have a like really like classic kind of fantasy like revenge rivalry story as well. And that's really cool. I, I enjoyed this one quite a bit too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like like Ian said too, I, I like these kind of stories a lot. Like very classic, like uh, a knight who's trying to like it's almost a revenge story but it's more like it deals more with honor so it's in his case it's more about trying to uh, not atone but make up for what he perceives as his own failures that he wasn't able to defend the king and protect his homeland and also wanting to know like why his friend did what he did so it was very interesting in that regard that his thing was just trying to get to the bottom of it. And he carried a lot of trauma from what happened, but he just wanted to know why did this happen and wanted to basically just be able to make up for it in a way. And they did a very good job with it. It's very well-rounded. You end up finding out things. I like how they even settled it with him and his friend as well. Like once again, it was more of that honor-based thing. And he was just, he's just like a very, he's a very like classic character, but just very compelling. Like I ended up enjoying the story a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely a classic character. And you could say the story is a little cliche, but it's just, there's nothing wrong with that when it's really well executed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. Uh, should we talk about, I think, all of our favorites, Primrose? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm pretty happy. Thank you for letting me handle yeah, this one. Yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah. So. Females like Olberic, she was one of the two characters in the very first demo of the game. So it's one of the characters that, like, it was easy to like her because she she's the first character we've seen, basically. So, yeah, everyone, she's, she's a lot of players' favorite. So, yeah, Primo's story starts when 
we have we've got a flashback about how a father was assassinated by three men with specific marks. We've marked of the, we've got a flashback of that. It happened years ago when she was a kid, and she saw her father getting murdered by this man. So Primrose is driven by revenge, and she becomes a dancer in Sunshade, which is a, like a, an Arabic, like a desert-like town city. And she she becomes a dancer there, right? beating her time and hoping to learn more about her father's murders. So she eventually finds one of the men who killed her father. Was, was, it was one of the men consorting with her master, Helganish. Helganish is basically the, the guy who owns the dancing, the dancing saloon where Primrose works. And so she tries to follow Helganish to find out more about the man, one of the men who killed her father. However, Helganish stops her and also kills Primrose's only friend in Sunshade, who was Yusuf. Primrose takes down Helganish. She learns that the crow man can be found in steel snow. So Primrose travels to steel snow and she re- re- reunited with Ariana. She was, um, she was basically one of the servants in Primrose's house when, because Primrose is basically a, a noble. Ariana was one of the servants. She tells Primrose that the crow man runs a brothel nearby, so she decides to infiltrate, to infiltrate the place. After killing the man, uh, Primrose then goes to noble court in hopes of finding a next target, which was basically another servant in the, for her family. He was a gardener's apprentice of House Azulhart, and she was also, he was also a crush when she, when she was in childhood, basically. So Primrose doesn't tell him about her re- plans of revenge. However, she's also re- reunited with Rebello, who used to serve the family as well. So they track down the second crowman and take him down. But before Primrose can rejoice, uh, Simon shows up to stab her, revealing himself to be the third man, the third of the third final crowman, the leader of Obsidian, the organization who killed a father. So Primrose then travels to Everhold to confront Simeon, where he's put on a play about Primrose's childhood, because the city has like a giant like theater, and that's on a play which is based on Primrose's life. So during the confrontation, we learn that Primrose has, be, has been fueled by nothing but revenge all these years. Primrose finally kills Simeon, and she finally goes to her father's graves and admits that she still doesn't have a purpose in life. Until she finds her purpose, she will continue to dance. So, yeah, this is Primrose's story. Although it's kind of, it's really... It's much darker than all the other stories. It's also pretty sad because at the end of the day, you learn that Primrose was only living for revenge. And now that she, she attained her revenge, she doesn't really know what to do. So it's a really dark story and, and sad story compared to the others. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's got like a lot of pathos and... Yeah, this is definitely a revenge story, but at the same time, like there's just something like so appealing about the character of Primrose, and it's just even the concept that she starts out as uh, they don't say it say it exactly, but just an exotic dancer or whatever, and meanwhile is like taking agency in her own life, even if it is driven by revenge. That's a really cool kind of contrast. Yeah. Exactly. 
Yeah. And I think I know for me, what kind of really gripped her, and this is also true when I first had played that demo. And what shocked me was because at first, the way she's presented, obviously, is that she's working under this guy, completely very subservient. He's an awful, like, monster and very abusive. And then... Yeah. And then when you start to see like already, obviously she had other motivations. And when she goes to confront that, that crow, that crow marked man who's been meeting with her uh, master. And I think what struck me too was just how easily she turned against him. And then you could see at that point, oh, wow, she's been just holding herself back. Because like once, once he did what he did with her friend and then essentially outlived his own usefulness, she killed him with no effort and it was just like wow she is willing to do anything for this for the sake of her revenge and you really saw it like how determined she was and i just really liked the story too because it did tackle so many dark like themes and topics and it did it in such a good way like it didn't try to over i hate to say it but it's true when they try to over sexify it in a way a female trauma and that didn't happen with her like you said she had agency in herself like she was fully in control of her own journey and what she was doing and even when she had the betrayal with with Simeon even with that kind of horrible betrayal she still had her agency with that it hurt her but she went on and she took care of her business <laughs> so i just i really liked how they handled her story this could have easily been like poor very badly mishandled and they did a really great job with the writing here making her so like fascinating and and so interesting to watch and making you really care about her story yeah absolutely absolutely personally Mm -hmm. like i really liked it but at the same time it's probably one of the stories like that like i was the most like crumbs Mm -hmm. with i'm not sure how to explain them but I, i think like it's the first thing that bothered me i guess is similarly with ophelia i think i feel like it's a bit it's a bit of a weird villain it's like a cartoon villain like you could tell he was definitely going to betray her it's the same thing with matthias and ophelia it's kind of weird i feel like they could have handled that a bit better yeah yeah no that makes sense i guess for me why i accepted it more with like than with ophelia was because the fact that she did have this big crush on him when she was a kid and you can tell she still carried those like feelings of like idealization because anything that happened in her life before her dad was killed you could see she treasured those were like beautiful memories to her and she saw them like with nothing but good things so i think like you said even with Simeon, who, like you said, at that point, you could you could clearly see something was off with him. But I think because, but I think because for her, because she had seen him in such a good light, she easily ignored those signs. Even though we see that she's a very careful, reasonable person normally, and she's very methodical. But I think with him, she got sloppy because of the fact that she still thought of him as this good person from the time, the good parts in her life. And she just, and that's why she was even trying to protect him from her revenge, so to speak. She didn't want him to be associated with that one bit because of that. So I I guess that's why I liked it because it was definitely a flaw with her. But for me, at least, it was a flaw that 
made sense. And it was something that she had to reckon with when he did betray her. And she had to realize, yeah, like I screwed up. He's really bad. Mm, yeah. One thing I wanted to point out as mm-hmm. well is I don't know if you guys play the game with the Japanese dub. I, I did that. Oh, you did? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Primrose is worth, which is one of my favorite seiyu uh, voice actors and actresses in Japan. And she's mm-hmm. also, she was also Elma in Xenoblade, in Xenoblade Cross. She's also Songo in Inuyasha. So she, I really oh, like mm. her voice. I think she did a really great job with Primrose Story. Like I tend to play, I mainly play games in Japanese with the, Japanese dub, and I really liked it. Yeah, I think she does a really good job. That's, oh, nice. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Actually, you've got to listen to then. <laughs> Definitely. So the next character that's up is Alfin. So Alfin uh, serves as the town apothecary in Clearbook, along with his friend Zeph. When Zeph's sister gets poisoned, he goes to hunt down a snake and takes its venom to nurse her back to health. We learn that Alfin became an apothecary because he was saved from a terrible illness when he was younger. And the apothecary who saved him inspired him to become woman as well. So then Alfin decided to travel the world to help people out. He uh, first arrives at Goldshore, where another apothecary named Vanessa seems to be taking good care of everyone. However, we learn later that she's been dosing her medicines with the virus and handing them out for free to cure people with a common flu. After they are cured from the flu, they then they start showing symptoms of this deadly virus, and Vanessa can then scam them by selling the cure for a premium. Alfin tracks her down in a nearby cave and takes her down, while also managing to concoct an antidote for the town. He then moves on to Saintsbridge, where he meets another apothecary named Ogan. Ogan sees a man bleeding to death and refuses to save him because he recognized him as a bandit. Alfin decides to save him, however, as he believes that all lives should be saved. Ogan reveals that he made the same mistake of saving a refugee once, and the man proceeded to kill his wife. Later on, the man that Alfin saves kidnaps a child for ransom and runs off. Alfin pursues him and rescues the child, but is then left conflicted about his ethics as an apothecary. Alfin then goes to where he meets Ogan again, and they both start treating the sickly people there. Ogan starts showing signs of illness, and Alfin learns that Ogan has been contracting all sorts of diseases over the years, but refused to treat himself because he was waiting to die. Alfin recognizes the symptoms as he had contracted the same disease when he was a child and was saved by the apothecary who inspired him. He remembers the recipe for the antidote he needs and is able to save. Ogan then reveals that he was saved by that same apothecary some years ago and says his name was Graham Crossford. After that, Alfin returns home to Clearbook. So this was actually a pretty interesting story too. I it posed a really interesting question in terms of the ethics of of your healer. Should you be healing everyone? Would you have the right to pass a judgment down on other people? I know the story kind of leaves it a bit open, obviously, but and you would think, okay, that's a little disappointing in a way, but it makes sense because it's like, that is a really difficult question. It's not something that you can wrap up very neatly. And it's something that the character would have to consider as he moves on because it's like, yeah, 
he saved this bandit who took a kid for ransom. But then let's say, what if he saved the bandit who then went on to start saving other people because he was grateful? It's, you can never really tell like what someone will be capable of if, if you reach out and, and help them. Or what if look at Alf encountering the other apothecary? She seemed like a great person until he found out what she was doing. So, <laughs> so it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting story. And I'm always like those kind of stories that kind of pose those sort of questions for you to think about like long after you finish. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I I really like this one too. And I like the ambiguity of it. And this could be probably said about a lot of the stories in the game, but it's a really interesting morality to play. It definitely felt like a little disconnected from some of the other narratives and the overarching narrative. But as just a standalone mm-hmm. story, I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I really liked uh, Alfin's story because that's definitely like when you're a doctor, should you save everyone? Should you should you not save someone if you know that they're evil, good team? And I really liked it overall. I think that, yeah, I think I'm going to repeat myself. But again, I feel like the characters of all are a bit naive. Like Alfin could have told that this guy was up to no good. So yeah, <laughs> it's pretty weird. It's weird. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and that was the whole thing because they knew that she was a bandit, and then Alfin just made that decision to save him anyway. But yeah, in that sense, yeah, Ogan was the one who was uh, obviously I'm not gonna. heal him so yeah i i get what you mean though and i think that's kind of where it comes from because it's kind of as a doctor does he have the right to pass judgment or not other people even if someone does look like they're clearly not good like should he be picking and choosing who he saves and where does that start and where does that end that sort of thing yeah Yeah. so i get what you're saying too that's why it's such an interesting sort of thing to examine in this sort of story because was he justified or not in that or was Ogan more justified at the end the story like like Paul said the story doesn't have a, a real answer at the end because yeah it's a very difficult question so they didn't really tip the balance toward Alfin's way of thinking or Ogan's way of thinking and yeah it's up to you to to decide and think about it and meditate about the story and to finish playing it Exactly. Yeah. That's why I liked it a lot because of that. I didn't try to baby you into an obvious conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So why don't we move on to uh, Therion? Yep. So Therion learns of a mysterious treasure in Ravis Manor that no one can steal, and he wants to try it for himself. He manages to infiltrate the manor and finds a dragon stone, but is basically caught by a butler named Heathcote. So he uh, takes on Heathcote in battle, but the butler manages to slap a fool's bangle on him, which damages Therion's pride as a thief. Heathcote and Lady could. <laughs> I feel like this. I feel like I'm describing the story of a like BBC uh, <laughs> peer drama. Right <laughs> Heathcote and Lady Cordelia strike a deal with him. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Basically, they say they'll remove the bangle if he manages to retrieve the other three dragon stones that have been stolen. Therion first heads to Noble Court, where a researcher is said to have the stone. He retrieves it, then uh, reports back to Heathcote, who directs him to Wellspring next. At the Black Market in Wellspring, Therion finds the dragon stone, but it's stolen by another thief named Darius. Him and Darius used to be partners, but he betrayed Therion and left him for dead when he became jealous of uh, Therion's thieving skills. Therion was unable to retrieve the stone, but still he uh, tracks down Darius in Northreach. At Northreach, Therion infiltrates his hideout and takes back all the stones. Darius himself is weakened and betrayed by his own men when they take away all of his treasure. So Therion uh, returns the stones to uh, Heathcote and Cordelia, and they remove the bangle as promised, though we also find out that the bangle had already been unlocked when Heathcote had encountered him earlier. We also learn that the dragon stones were instrumental in the ritual to open the Gate of Finis, which is a setup for the epilogue or post. So yeah, that is Therion. <laughs> Yeah, so he was interesting. I think he was uh, an example of if you wanted to make a story with completely different stakes. And I think I like this one because it was just, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. It was a very fun, lighthearted story. And it obviously the stakes aren't dire, but for him, they're important. And so I, I, (laughs) it works really well in that regard. Like this story matches him as a character very well. And so you have your little bit of like when he has this confrontation with his former partner who betrayed him and he's able to finally get that cut cut up. Once again, they keep it, like I said, it it has that nice balance of keeping the lightheartedness, keeping it a different tone from the other stories. But at the same time, like the stakes are more, are compelling enough for him. So it it matches him well and it keeps you like fully interested in the story and trying to also help him recover his honor in a way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it is just a really fun, like, gentleman thief story that interest like in the back end of the the narrative then starts to feed into the larger like overarching story so that's pretty cool yeah Tarion's story was one of my favorites actually i really liked like uh, how i really like every chapter basically I, f- I thought every chapter was pretty nice so it's the beginning where he, where he confronts his coat and it's and he's hired to re- retrieve the dragon stones and then his quest to, to find each stone and he is um his reunion with his old pal would betray him and stuff i, I thought it's, it's just consistent i'd say it's pretty, it's pretty mm-hmm. fun yeah yeah definitely Tarion is, is also a pretty interesting character when it comes to some mechanics because you need him to open the locked lock chests in, in dungeon and stuff so sometimes also a, a bit of a core because if you didn't have him in your party you had to backtrack to get him and then go back to the chest to open it so that was a bit of a, a thing that could have handled better yeah, like maybe make it so you can buy lock picks or something. So even if you don't have Tyrion in your party, you can still open the chest. So. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that is something they could have balanced better. Although, yeah, like you said, I like the concept of that, him having a very specific skill uh, set that the party needed. Or at the very least, if they wanted to make sure you had him, like they could have made it clearer, had him like just be in your party. So like you knew that, okay, we need him for this skill set for this thing and just make sure that he's there like have him maybe say like a line or something that he's the only one that can open these chests or something like that yeah exactly so you know how you, you can avoid and you yeah. can also break the game with Tyrion by stealing super overpowered weapons it's very early <laughs> and, and then destroy everything yeah, yeah totally <laughs> exactly thief characters always do that <laughs> <laughs> oh man so. should we uh, move on to the next yeah we're moving on to the ace and final character um, Hanit I'll be handling that one as well Hanit is actually my, my favorite character in the game even above funerals I really I just really like her Hanit is a is part of a is part of a village with the where the hunters basically she's, she's a hunter and one year before the start of a story he only ended up sending back one letter and never came back so yeah each hunter in the village have a companion wolf basically the companion wolf Again, the companion wolf of her master comes back running into the village. And this is how Hanit learns that her master has some trouble dealing with a mysterious beast named the, the Red Eye. So Hanit decides to, to leave the village to help her master to defeat that monster. Hanit first goes to Stone God, where she's able to find her master. However, she finds out that her master was turned to stone by Red Eye. So she then travels to Steel Snow in the hopes of finding a cure. To she, she, she tries to find the seer who can help her dispel the curse of uh, petrification from the Red Eye. At Steel Snow, Hanit is told that the curse can be broken, but only if you defeat the Red Eye it- itself. So Hanit then travels to a to a cave near near Steel Snow to collect some herbs that will protect her from the curse. She also kills a dragon in the process while uh, the dragon was uh, protecting the, the herbs. So finally, Hanit travels to Marsalim, where she meets Eliza and the Knight's Ardent, who has cornered the Red Eye. So Hanit goes into the ruins to confront the Red Eye, and she finally defeats it. And she notes that the beast was unlike any other she, has, she had faced before. And she could not feel any emotion from Red, red Eye. And when it was slain, its body simply disintegrated. So it was a very peculiar monster. And however, killing the beast freed her master from the curse. And Hanit is re- re- reunited with her master. And she shares with him the tales of a journey. Yeah, it's worth noting that there is a post-game dungeon in the Top of Traveler. With Zazuki, which we'll be talking about later. This is we tie up everything more nicely. Explanations about the Gate of Phoenix, Graham Crossford's relation to rituals. So we'll be speaking about Hanit's story a bit more and then move on to that. Yeah, and this is Hanit's story. Uh, this is my favorite story in the game because I think it was really just consistent and just really good with Hanit's. Basically, you follow Hanit's journey as a hunter and it's like a training, it's like a it's like a initiation training for her because she basically managed to surpass her master. She defeats a monster that her master couldn't defeat. So it was a really nice story. And she also ends up meeting some of the 
friends of a master, like the seer she ends up meeting. It's like all the story is like a, a test for her and how like when she managed to defeat the dragon. When she defeats the dragon, Hanit learns from an NPC that her master also defeated the dragon back in the day. So it's just a lot of stuff like that makes you learn about her and learn about the journey. I also really Hanit is also as a, a companion painter named Linde, if I remember correctly. And you can have some the, also, the story also focused on a relationship with the painter. It was really good overall. I just really liked it. Yeah. So I, I, I really, yeah, I agree. I think Hanit is probably like my second favorite character. So I definitely agree with you there, Ian. She's just, she's, yeah, like I really like her story a lot. It was once again, that kind of like very different type of story where it's more, it's not grand at all. It's more personal. It's more isolated and it really works well with her. Like they, like the story beats are really interesting. And I kind of liked it too, because it was once again, it was a really nice uh, contrast with the other characters seeing someone like her who's more like calm colder collected like uh, most other characters are very or much more emotional uh, and guided by that and for her she has her strong morals and she's more in control of herself also i'm gonna say too that i i really love her and primrose's like interactions <laughs> in the in the in the, in the uh, epilogue like a lot and i was just kind of oh look at that my my two faves get along <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, her story is very good, very well paced. Like she's a great character, just really good overall. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that. I, you know, think it's just like a really well self-contained story, and she's just a really feeling protagonist. And any story where you're trying to trying to be the curse is, I don't know, I've got a weakness for that, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she's a badass she's a total badass yeah, yeah, yeah. she's awesome yeah. <laughs> I, I really like characters like her like it's a cool woman type like, going back to the Japanese dub again Hanit is voiced uh, by Yuko Kaida who's also Sai in Persona 5 take a really popular example so she oh, really uh. used to, to voicing like the, the super cool type of women and I, I just really like her Oh,
Now we should probably move on to the, uh, I'm not sure what to call it, the epilogue, the post game. Yeah. But yeah, this is pretty much where all these disparate narratives get pulled together. Mm-hmm. So there's a post game dungeon that ties the various characters together more cohesively and basically reveals more about the uh, mysterious gate of Finis and the overarching story of the game. So in basically uh, you're in the gate of Finis and we learn more about how lie black had manipulated multiple people into opening the gate for her and allowing her to summon Galdera. And it all started with house Ravis, the family that was entrusted with legendary dragon stones the sorcerer Odin Crossford used them to seal shut the Gate of Finis so that Galdera would never enter the mortal world. The King of Hornburg, Beowulf, then passed the stones to his loyal knight, who is the head of House Ravis. It's never really explicitly stated how uh, Lyblack opened the gate again, but you can assume that she'd stolen the stones before Therian's story begins. And that explains why Heathcote and Cordelia needed someone to retrieve them. We're also introduced to Graham Crossford, who is a descendant of Odin himself. He was an apothecary, and when his wife fell ill from a severe illness, he sought to create an elixir for her. But he was too late, and his wife passed away. But then he used the elixir to save a young Alphen instead which inspired him to become an apothecary just like him. After all of this, Liveblack approached Graham and told him that he could see his wife again if he helped open the uh, Gate of Finis. She needed Crossford blood to complete the ritual, and while Graham was tempted, he also resolved to follow her and try to foil her plan. If he failed, he knew that she would turn her sights on his on his son, Kit. Just as the ritual was getting started, Graham started to transform into a beast. He lashed out at Lyblack and managed to escape, but found himself losing more of his humanity. Yeah, so this is a pretty... You, the epilogue starts pretty much tying up everything. I, I'm going to to take over from now. On. So yeah, we learned that Graham was was turned into a beast. He was actually the red eye, the beast that Hanit and Zanta were, were tasked with hunting. And so because Lyblack was unable to use Graham to open the gates, she ended up searching for his son, Kit. So another part of the ritual required Lyblack to produce a black flame to summon, to summon Galdera. To do this, she, she made use of Matthias, who was uh, the villain in the Ophelia story, by granting him eternal life and having him infiltrate the ranks of the church. So Matthias' plan was to kill Joseph and manipulate Leanna into being a, a vestal for the ritual. But however, as we know, Ophelia eventually forced its plans by becoming the fan bearer herself, and she was able to save Liana. So it's not really clear how Lyblack will open the gates since everything seemed to be resolved in Philia's story. But for the moment, we are assuming that the creation of the Black Flame was enough to open the gates, despite, despite, the, despite the fame being snuffed out at the end. So Lyblack had, had also gained information about the gates itself by using Lucian Ivan, who has a villain in a Cyrus story. So with the help of Lucia, they manipulated Ivan into killing the previous headmaster of, Al- of Atlas Dam so that he could, u- 
he could assume the position for himself. So together they were able to uncover more dark tombs and detailed information about the blood crystals, which we assume is what Lightlock needed to use the crossroads to open the gate. So meanwhile, Graham has been detailing his travels in his journal. So we eventually find out that he, he missed Leon while looking for a ship to take him to where Lightlock is waiting for him. And he offers his journal to Leon as a possession. And this is how Tressa comes across the journal when she meets Leon in, in Ripple Tide. The journal doesn't actually detail, detail Graham's dealings with Lightlock, but rather his travels across the world as he was trying to brew the elixir for his, li- for his wife. So lastly, Lightlock sought to bring the, down the kingdom of Hornburg itself so that she could have easier access to the Gate of Phoenix. So to do that, she also manipulated Werner, who was the villain in uh, Old Beric's story, and gave him all the, fund- all the funding he needed to form a mercenary band to take it down from the inside. So as we know, Werner made use of Heart Art to betray the king. Primrose is the only character who seemed who seems to have a very loose connection to this whole saga. Primo's father, Gifoy, had found out about the Obsidians years before his death. Uh, he sought to destroy the organization, and in doing so, he found out that they were assisting Matthias in his attempts to infiltrate the church and to open the Gate of Phoenix. So Primrose just wanted to kill them for revenge. So this is basically a, a summary of old what we learn in the epilogue of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of information overall that ties up everything together, basically. Well, I actually liked it. I was surprised at how well everything fits together. Like, even the more incidental stuff was... I liked it because you had, like, ripple effects. Like, for instance, the ripple effect with Primrose that her whole life was, you could argue, ruined because of what her father discovered and that these men decided to just go ahead and kill him. So that completely affected him. And then on the other hand, you have Alphine who by chance, you know, because of this tragedy where he, where Graham couldn't save his wife, but born from that, he was able to save the life of a child instead. And that child grew up to become an apothecary who ended up helping many other people. So it's like you even you have a really tightly written stuff that's very like intertwined, Ophelia's story and such and, and Therians. But then you have the other ones that were affected by smaller like events and then just caused that kind of uh, butterfly effect in that way. So I kind of like that. It was like a nice variation. It was really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was nice to see it all come together. I, it's funny because I think one of the common critiques that I've seen of this game is that the narratives feel too disconnected and they don't really intersect enough. And yeah. I feel like maybe a lot of the people who make that critique aren't haven't really played the post-game. And it does a really good job of interweaving different elements of the narratives. I, I, I love the reveal of how Red Eye came to be and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You yeah. know, and oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was really like moving, like when you find out who Red Eye was. And yeah, it's, it was a pretty big shock. You know? It really shows yeah. that even even if it's true that the when you play through the game, the 
you don't really see the the connections. It really shows that they really did write all the story together and they really thought of how to connect everything and, and that everything is linked. A lot of people don't realize it because, yeah, it's, it's true. Also, the game doesn't do a, a really good job at showing that before the epilogue. Yeah, yeah. I guess for me, I didn't understand the critique because I was always kind of, even before, like with the epilogue that does tying things, I was, but isn't that the point of the game? Like that you are supposed to be playing as different narratives? I'm like, that was one of the big selling points that it's different people with different lives and different experiences and you're settling their stories. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense to me. Like that's exactly what I knew I was getting into and I liked because most JRPGs, have all the characters interconnected, very intertwined with each other. So it's cool to see a story that at the very least starts off with characters having very like separate tales and then wrapping those tales up. And then you have that kind of one final thing where you get to see the bigger picture and you see them like supporting each other. I guess I'm, I, that's just, that's me at least. So I guess that's how I feel about it. <laughs> uh. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I feel like that was one of the yeah. main selling points of the game. And it's just incre it's a, an incredibly unique approach to it. The closest you'll get in other JRPGs is here are a few like prologues where you get to know different characters and then they all join in a party. But these were all like, I don't know, it's, it's very cool. It's a compilation of like short stories and very unique approach to telling a story in a JRPG game. Yeah, like, I think the only one I can really just think of that comes to mind is, like, Saga Frontier. And that's also, that's a very old game. And it's like, they, and obviously this game was inspired heavily by that. Which And it's, yeah, it's interesting that, like, that this sort of st uh, style of storytelling really isn't used that much. And JRPGs, which is why I like Octopath Traveler so much, because it that was another reason, like way that it sets itself apart. And you get this very different narrative experience than you would normally. Yeah, one thing I wanted to bring up is in the final dungeon in the epilogue. Basically, it's like a boss rush. You you, mm -hmm. you need to defeat tons of different bosses. Each time you defeat a boss, you have a text to read you have a dialogue with some with some revelations you learn more, more about the villains and this is how you learn how some of the villains were ultimately manipulated to to open the gate of Phoenix to to summon galera i thought that was a good thing but at the same time i i thought it was a shame that they didn't manage to to basically implement that to implement all that information in the game itself instead of right until the yeah episode, if you get yeah the yeah, I get that. Uh, yeah, I agree that I feel like they could have seeded some of that like master overarching narrative better. That's true. It definitely and it, it it definitely does feel disconnected and it's a little weird to know that there mm -hmm. is this like kind of apocalyptic threat that and then play, play <laughs> like the stories of eight characters many of which only tangentially deal with that until you get to the final game but yeah exactly i thought at the same time for the risks and experiments they were taking with the 
structure of the game and the narrative. I feel like you can lend them a little grace for not totally nailing the landing as far as keeping that mm-hmm. master narrative like top of mind. Yeah. So do you guys have any like final thoughts or opinions that you'd like to what do you think about uh, the game? One one of the last thing about the, the epilogue oh, yeah. is also the final battle. I thought it was cool, but also it uh, Touch was a bit of a shame because it's actually the only battle in the game where you need to use all of the eight characters, and they actually didn't use that idea elsewhere in the game. Bit weird. They actually, what what happened to me is because in the final dungeon you, you can't save. You need to beat all the bosses, and then you need to beat Galdera. And if you die at Galdera, you need to redo everything again. What happened to me is I didn't know actually. When you're about to fight Galera, the game tells you you need to make two parties. And I didn't get what it means. I, I thought it was like, if the first party dies, then you switch to the next party. I didn't get that it meant that the, there's two phases and that the second phase will be the second party. So I ended up getting wiped out and when I did it. I didn't want to redo everything again, so I just ended up watching the, the ending on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want... I, I, <laughs> I didn't want to refight all the bosses again and refight the Caldera again. So I, I just went I just ended up thinking what happens on YouTube when you defeat him. Because I knew I could fight him anyway. I just was misprepared because I didn't know that I yeah. had to use the two parties. There's no shame in that as far as I'm concerned. Not at all. Especially when you're talking about a boss rush. Yeah, definitely. I get that. I, I would say maybe they could have been like a bit clearer on that too, so it'd be easier to understand. It's gonna be first party goes first, and second party is gonna go second with that. I don't know. That kind of tends to be an issue when they do that. Like I'm thinking, of course, of Final Fantasy VII, when you were fighting Bizarro Sephiroth, and mm-hmm. when they t- depending on how well you had done against the final Genova form, you either have one or three parties. But they didn't really exp- they didn't they didn't tell you how that worked. That you would just switch off at random points, so you just had to figure that out yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And then if, so I I, I realized yeah, it's this thing when they do stuff like that, they never explain the mechanics of it. They just. Or like in Final Fantasy VIII, where when you're fighting Ultimisha, they don't explain to you that if your party member is KO'd and you don't revive them in time, you permanently lose them. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so yeah, it's, come on. You didn't have to repeat that from older JRPG. <laughs> Just explain this to us. <laughs> yeah. So I get yeah, it. Totally, totally. <laughs> i know uh before ian you had mentioned something about how you felt about the dungeon design in this game yeah yeah it's one of my biggest like it's one of the biggest i think it's one of the biggest flaws in the game like the definitely could have handled the dungeon design better because at the end of the day every dungeon is just you just follow the path easier to a treasure chest easier to the bus there's no there's like no gimmicks there's no there's no ex- real exploration. You just follow a path to the bus and that's it. And all the dungeons are like that. And I, at first I didn't notice, but as you play to the game, uh, I thought that was really disappointing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, as far as my final thoughts, I love the way the structure, the design, and the complexity of the battle system and all that. Though there's definitely at times where, you know, I think I said this earlier, I, I, I felt like it was a game that I respected more than I enjoyed. <laughs> and I, I did enjoy mm-hmm. a lot of it, but yeah, there was just aspects. I, I just felt like there was like too many random encounters and there were certain stretches of it, especially in the dungeons that just felt a little tedious and too much of a throwback to the 16 bit JRPGs where I don't know, a little more of the modern like quality of life improvements would have been nice for them to introduce into the game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess for my final thoughts, I was joking with Ian in a side conversation that like I'm an Octopath Traveler stand. Mm-hmm. Very biased when it comes to this, but I ended up. I really love. I really like this game a lot. I really enjoyed it. I I definitely do see what Ian was coming from with the dungeon design. Um, like I'm someone who actually really is. I'm terrible with puzzles, so I hate them often oh, yeah. in JRPG. So while well, I was, I, and I, I recognize that there should have been maybe something engaging in. In the dungeons and i was just relieved oh thank god not to solve like puzzles but <laughs> i do agree that there should have been like more things to discover because i like that i enjoy a lot of dungeons i like i like exploring dungeons i like finding hidden paths and like unique things things like that and i felt yeah i think this game didn't really have a lot of that diversity with that so i definitely i do agree that was one of that was a weakness of the game and another one too of course was that the the path system was really interesting but i also wish that they had integrated it a bit more the path action system like they had done more with it built on it more because it was really fun like it was so much fun like i loved when i was playing as us Ulbrich and i could just challenge almost anyone in this village and there was an old lady i could fight her i could fight kids i could just fight like whoever i wanted it was great And just, I don't know, it just made me laugh. So I was like, and other ones too. I really liked all the uh, half actions. And so I agree. I wish that there was more like importance tied in with them in terms of the story and gameplay and whatnot. I think the only one that I think really did work really well was was uh, with Cyrus because that it, it, it added into the whole investigative nature of the game. And it tied in with, of his story. And I really liked how that tied in like, really nicely with that yeah but overall i'm a big stand of this game i love it <laughs> oh yeah yeah and I, I i i really like it too i i don't want to come off i'm just totally bagging on it i i really like it <laughs> but yeah there was definitely some times when i was like man i feel something that i feel like all mm-hmm. modern jrpgs should have which is give me a fast forward button yeah <laughs> yeah ian do you have any final thoughts yeah so octopath traveler i really liked it but at the same time yeah i have some very mixed feelings about the game like i said after the second demo i was super excited to the point that i was playing the game on the way back home when i was when i just booked the game and i was super excited but the more i played it like the more it feels overall. It feels a lot. It feels very repetitive. The first symptom point to just go from a mm-hmm. chapter to a new town, and then a cutscene, and then a dungeon, a boss cutscene, 
new town, dungeon. Uh, it's just the same pattern every time. I, I really enjoyed the game, but yeah, I, I think it's like the repetition and the, and the lack of like lack of engagement, you could say, in dungeon design is one of the things that I didn't like. And that's uh, lastly, that the stories would say even there's some stories that are really good and that are uh, really exciting and fun to follow, and other stories that. Uh, it's not like they're bad, but you can tell it's not the same quality. Basically, as for the good points, yeah, I remember the battle system it was particularly, it's definitely great. It's brilliant. It's I think it's one of it's one of the best evolution of like old school turn-based games along with the Persona series. I think it's the best battle system you can do with turn-based. The music, the the OST is really good as well. That's, that's yeah. I think that's the two biggest, the, the strongest points of the game. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Me too. Should we uh, should we wrap up here? Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll be pretty hopeful for the future, I think, I believe. So hopefully it will be covering the flows of the original improve even more some of its strengths. So I'm really looking forward to what they do next to series. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. They definitely seem to really improve with each game that they do, and I haven't put a lot of time into it, but Bravely Default Two is a really phenomenal iteration on the 3DS games. Yeah. I have a lot of hope that they will similarly improve on the formula they've set out with Octopath Traveler with the sequel. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, let's get our, let's do plugs. Uh, Ian, Ian, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, you can find my work at Dual Focus. Yeah, I focus mainly on Genshin Impact and Japanese games in general. Mainly like everything Final Fantasy, Persona. Yeah, uh, I write about everything Japanese related and anime as well. You can find me on Twitter as well, which is Humble, my real name. Awesome. Elisa, you got something? Okay. You can find my current writings on GamePer. It's similar to where I used to write on DualShocker. So GamePer, I write news articles, guides, previews. I have a review. I have a preview already put out for SM, SMT3 uh, Nocturnes, the remaster. And I have a review coming up for that as well. Definitely check out my works there. Of course, other than Combo Chain, I also co-host the Megatan Marathon podcast with with Paul. So definitely check that out as well. And uh, you can also catch me on Twitter. My handle is ajames347. And you can just talk to me about anything regarding JRPGs or whatnot. Like, I could go on for a long time about those. So, you know, <laughs> definitely feel free to just, like, drop by with comments or anything like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and as for me, check out our Patreon at Mirror Image Studios. And for uh, $5 a month, you will be getting a extra episode every month. And like I said, we're going to be doing Final Fantasy VIII. And uh, that should be out about a week after this. And also, if for a $2 pledge, you'll get the episodes a week early. So, yeah, check it out. It's Patreon, Mirror Image Studios. 
And as for other stuff, if you want to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on Twitter. It's uh, Combo Chain FM. We're on Facebook, and uh, you can send us an email at combochainfm at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, that wraps it up, I think. Thank you so much for listening, and yeah. Thank you, Ian, for uh, joining us. I think we're gonna we're gonna have you back for a Valkyrie of Chronicles episode. So that'll be that'll be fun. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm pretty big Valkyrie Chronicles fan as well, so I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, awesome. And yeah, just uh, also welcome to being the permanent co-host. Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> well, I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, really good. Uh, have another person and specifically you in this crazy endeavor of covering just about every JRPG out there that we can think of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, we will be back in a couple weeks with an episode awesome. on Seventh Dragon Code X- XFD. Is that it? <laughs> I think it's like, yeah, it's like a VFD, I think, something yeah, like VFD. that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the title always gets yeah. me. <laughs> and yeah, like I said, uh, in a week on uh, the Patreon, we'll have a episode about Final Fantasy VIII. Yep. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for listening and take care, all. All right. Take care, everyone. See you later, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>